This is Backstory. I'm Brian Bellow. Only 18 calories per teaspoon of Domino Pure Cane Sugar. Lift up your energy, feel great, while you're holding down your weight. In the 1950s, Domino sold its sugar by playing up how good it was for you. sugar. And if that strikes you as strange, just consider the way healthy eating was understood a hundred years earlier. If people are eating the wrong foods, they will become more and more sexually licentious, and they will ultimately become kind of babbling idiots. Today on the show, 200 years of nutritional advice. We'll ask why early Americans connected diet and sex, and why vegetarians a generation later connected diet with slavery. What was the cause of a violent and corrupt society? Well, for vegetarians, it was meat. A history of health food, today on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Ballow, and I'm here with Ed Ayers. Hi, Brian. And Peter Onuf. Hey there, Brian. And today, we're here to commiserate with all of you who sometimes yearn for, well, a simpler time. It seems to me we are confronted every day with new knowledge that robs us of a lifelong assumption that there are some simple truths that can be taken for granted. This This is BBC commentator Alastair Cook filing one of his weekly Letters from America in the summer of 1957. Take milk, for example. Until very lately, no nation on earth had drunk so much milk as the Americans had done in the past 44 years. Alistair Cook was talking about milk because milk was at yet another turning point. Its first turning point had come, as he said, 44 years earlier. That's when the federal government embarked on a campaign to rid the nation's milk of tuberculosis bacteria. By 1920, milk, which had only two decades earlier been notorious for spreading tuberculosis and typhoid, was now being widely referred to as, quote, nature's perfect food. And now, in 1957, all that was being turned on its head. The milk fad is waning so fast in the United States that the great dairy states feel as unsympathetic to doctors as the tobacco industry. Some busybody has discovered that what seems to clog human arteries and cause clots and heart attacks is a chemical snag known as cholesterol. And milk is mother's milk to cholesterol. Sure enough, per capita milk consumption, which had peaked after World War II, fell steadily in the decades that followed. At last count, it was a little more than half of what it had been in the 1950s. If the cholesterol crusade catches on, it's going to be a dim future for Wisconsin and Minnesota and many other regions of the cow country. And I should guess that by about 1984, Miss America will be a midget walking around on stumps. But of course, she will be sound in heart and limb. Alistair Cook may have been wrong about that stumps thing. 
Miss America 1984 was the very average in height Vanessa Williams. But as for the bigger picture, Cook was more right than he could have imagined. Because once again, we're being faced with new knowledge that robs us of that which we thought we could take for granted. I'll bet you think milk makes you fat. Guess again, friend. Two new studies have a counterintuitive finding. People who make a habit of consuming high-fat dairy tend to be leaner. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. Breakfast time can be noisy. This is NPR's Morning Edition, reporting on a Swedish study in 2014, concluding that, yes, consuming dairy fat may make you skinnier. Around the same time, a different study made headlines for suggesting that there was no evidence linking saturated fat to an increased risk of heart disease. With advice as all over the map as this, it can be tempting to throw up your hands and give up on healthy eating altogether. But today on Backstory, we're taking a different tack. We're embracing healthy eating in all of its manifestations through time. The history of nutritional advice is our topic for the rest of the hour. We've got a surprising story about the early days of vegetarianism and one that explores the origins of that nutritional advice on today's food packaging. We've even got an in-studio cereal tasting all ready to go. But first, we're going to spend a few minutes examining the teachings of the man who was America's first health food guru. His name was Sylvester Graham, and he was a minister in New England who took his message to many thousands of people on the lecture circuit, which is sort of the cable television of its time. Now, Graham was hugely popular. Thousands turned out to hear his lectures, and he developed a devoted following. Some of those followers published journals to further disseminate his message. Others founded boarding houses where they could collectively follow a Graham-approved lifestyle. Which we should say is pretty impressive. After all, the Grahamite diet was kind of tough. A true adherent would sleep on a hard bed and take cold baths. He or she'd eat lots of vegetables and plenty of hearty wheat bread. But there were also some pretty strict prohibitions. No alcohol? No tea or coffee, no sugar, no spices, and absolutely no meat. Now, the first thing you need to understand about Graham is that he wasn't doing all of this so people could shave a few pounds off their figures. There was a lot more at stake than that. There was an epidemic sweeping the nation, he said, and food was key to stopping it. What was this epidemic? Heart disease? No. Cancer? No. It was youthful masturbation. Here's how Graham described the victim of this terrible affliction. The wretched transgressor sinks into a miserable fatuity and eventually becomes a confirmed and degraded idiot whose deeply sunken and vacant glossy eye and livid shriveled countenance and ulcerous toothless gums and fetid breath an emaciated and dwarfish and crooked body and almost hairless head denote a premature old age, a blighted body, and a ruined soul. And he drags out the remnant of his loathsome existence in exclusive devotion to his horribly abominable sensuality. From the 21st century, we think the idea of an epidemic of masturbation is completely nuts. This is Keela Wazana Tompkins, who has written about the reasons Graham's idea struck a chord in the young nation. 
But we could think of it as a kind of early sex panic in the way that in the Cold War, there was also kind of a homosexual panic, right? Yeah. And it's partly the result of major economic changes in the U.S., which is that all of a sudden, there's an enormous amount of single young people leaving family farms and moving to the cities and becoming involved in the industrialized life of the nation. So all of these young people, men and women, are living on their own for the first time out of parental control. And so this is sort of a kind of massive anxiety about what's going to happen to the reproductive energies of all of these young people. Are they not going to reproduce? Are all those energies not going to go towards the well-being of the nation? So what's striking to us is uh, the fact that people are linking diet so explicitly to these fears they have of a population out of control that's going to end up as a population of blathering idiots. Why did diet emerge as both the metaphor and as the solution to this rampant problem? What Graham is most worried about is overstimulation. And for him, there's a deep parallel between sexual overstimulation and uh, oral overstimulation. So eating too many spicy foods, um, eating too many foods that will overstimulate your body will result in a kind of weakening of the body. So the ways in which we today, for instance, talk about drugs like crack, right, that someone does Mm -hmm. crack for the first time and the feeling is so amazing, they spend the rest of their addictive life searching for that first experience, is exactly the ways in which Graham is talking about diet and how he's talking about sex, which is to say the first time you have that overstimulating experience is so good, you just keep trying to find that high again. But that overstimulation, in fact, weakens you. And so you keep going out to try to find that exciting experience. And the more you do it, the more you weaken yourself until you've entirely lost your strength. All kinds of stimulating and heating substances, high-seasoned food, rich dishes, the free use of flesh, and even the excess of aliment, all more or less, and some to a very great degree, increase the concupiscent excitability and sensibility of the genital organs and augment their influence on the functions of organic life and on the intellectual and moral faculties. So why such a sense of urgency that Americans might become lazy and debilitated by eating the wrong diet and behaving wrong sexually? Well, this has a lot to do with uh, this period of massive U.S. expansion into the Western states. I mean, I think it's really important to understand that the United States is a young country, and they're engaged in what they see as this enormous social experiment. And part of that experiment is coming up with an idea of what the ideal citizen is. The ideal citizen of the 1830s is uh, a man, is European-American, is land-holding, is virile, um, probably, you know, uh, not a dissipated masturbator alcoholic, but actually married and reproducing and directing their sexual energies um, towards making more American citizens. So he's very worried that the citizens of this enormous imperial social experiment are going to consume themselves into weakness and thereby ruin the social project. So Graham, it does not merely define what he believes in by what he's against, right? He has a vision of what a healthy American diet should look like. Can can you describe what his dream would be that the American nation would be feeding upon? Well, 
he believes that um, Americans should eat American food. In some ways, he's the first locavore uh, in American food history. Um, so, you know, uh, wheat, bread, potatoes, simple vegetables, rice, absolutely no stimulants. And interestingly, most of the stimulants that he wants to avoid are stimulants that would have had to be imported from either Asia or South America or the Caribbean. So, hey, you, know, you know, there's one food I didn't hear you say that I would think of as a quintessentially American food, and that's corn. Uh, where is corn in the Graham diet? You know, Graham's uh, word for his ideal foods is farinaceous. Any kind of food that can be made into a flour is a farinaceous food, and that includes corn. But really what he's most interested in is wheat. And that's really important because this period of American expansion is a period in which, you know, expansion into the West is being led by wheat agriculture. And part of the expansion into the West is about pushing out native peoples and displacing native nations. And corn, of course, is the indigenous grains of the Americas and in many ways the central food of indigenous peoples. So corn is important to him but he's much more interested kind of symbolically in wheat. So that's very strange. He's a locavore who doesn't want to eat an indigenous food. Yes. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Well, think about the phrase, uh, American is apple pie. And then think about a figure like Johnny Appleseed. Um, You know, um, the apple, like wheat, is another food that's brought over by European colonists and is planted as part of kind of the story of manifest destiny of Western progress of Anglo-Europeans all the way to the Pacific. So in many ways, this, this ascetic diet is a kind of imperial diet. It's about transplanting Europeans into the Americas and making European Americans in some ways, indigenous to the Americas at a moment where there's widespread, you know, genocidal violence against indigenous peoples. So it's not that he doesn't believe in corn. It's just that he's very invested in the story of American progress into the West. And wheat is at the heart of that story. They who have never eaten bread made of wheat recently produced by a pure virgin soil, have but a very imperfect notion of the deliciousness of good bread, such as is often to be met with in the comfortable log houses in our western country. Rice, barley, oats, rye, Indian corn, and many other farinaceous products of the vegetable kingdom may also be manufactured into bread, but none of them will make so good bread as wheat. Keela Wazana Tompkins is an associate professor of English at Pomona College. She is the author of Racial Indigestion, Eating Bodies in the 19th Century. In the first part of our show, we heard about Sylvester Graham, the godfather of American health food, and about how, for Graham... Healthy eating was integral to what it was to be a good American. We're going to focus in now on one aspect of the Grahamite diet that for many of his followers was especially tied to their civic identity, vegetarianism. By the time the American Vegetarian Society, or the AVS, was founded in 1850, vegetarianism had become intimately tied to another reform movement, abolitionism. 
To the members of the AVS, the connection between the two wasn't subtle. Here's AVS founder William Alcott speaking to the group's members in 1850. There is no slavery in this world like the slavery of a man to his appetite. Let man but abstain from the use of the flesh and fish, and the slavery of one man to another cannot long exist. Sounds totally bizarre, but they wholeheartedly believed in this notion that slavery was only possible in a violent and corrupt society. This is Adam Spritzen, who has written about the history of vegetarianism. And what was the cause of a violent and corrupt society? Well, for vegetarians, it was meat, because meat caused individuals to become violent and corrupted. In other words, if Americans stopped eating meat, slavery would eventually die. And in 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act gave vegetarians a chance to accelerate that process. The decision to make those territories slave or free would be put to a vote by the settlers there. And so members of the American Vegetarian Society flocked west, eager to make the territories a model for the rest of the country. Adam Spritzen told me that they were led by an AVS member named Henry S. Club. Club's idea is to kind of take these principles, especially the principle of vegetarianism connected with abolitionism, and put it into practice. So he decides that they're going to form a colony in pre-state Kansas, understanding that soon enough there is going to be a vote on the territory's status within the Union, whether it would go slave or free state. So it's part of a larger movement of groups going out from the the Northeast to try to make a demographic flood in favor of a free state. As a way to bring slavery to an end, I have to admit that seems like kind of a long way around, doesn't it? (laughs) It is is kind of involved. (laughs) So what they're essentially trying to do is settle this land and build their own small city. Uh, The first group of settlers arrive. They're very enthusiastic about their cause, of course. But then when the next wave of settlers come from the Northeast, the settlement itself is rickety. There's maybe some old sheds with, you know, barely with roofing on it. Henry S. Club himself is living in an abandoned um, Native American wigwam. You know, there's there's a significant disenchantment really quickly. And within three to four months, uh, especially as mosquito season really starts to hit and people suffer certainly diseases that are associated with that. Again, they're right on the banks of a river. A lot of the reformers end up kind of turning around and heading back east. But what also happens is that these settlers that remain end up taking up arms themselves and joining the Union Army including Henry S. Club. Yeah, because all this that just happens in 10 years, right? I mean, so they come out there in the early 1850s, and pretty soon war descends upon them. So, exactly. So what, what difference does the Civil War make? I mean, as you think about something that seems to be the direct opposite of everything that these people <laughs> believe in, the Civil War would seem to embody that, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's a real sort of contradiction in terms for the vegetarians who— whose background is indelibly intertwined with the, the ideology of pacifism. Remember, again, the idea is that if you eat meat, you're going to be violent and aggressive. Um, Henry S. Club, who's the original founder of the settlement, is sort of the living embodiment of this dichotomy between abolitionism and vegetarianism. So Club joins the Union Army. He serves as a quartermaster. So he's literally arming soldiers, providing strategic and material support. But Club himself refuses to carry a weapon during the war. So clearly he's, you know, really kind of wrestling with these two values that he finds to be of equal importance. So 
on one hand, the war obviously brings slavery to an end. It seems to be in some the culmination of the things that the American Vegetarian Society and their fellow travelers most believed in. Does this seem like, okay, now the way is prepared for the efflorescence of vegetarianism in the United States? Does it really take off after the war? So vegetarians in the the, the immediate post-Civil War years have lost their sort of distinctiveness and their focus on vegetarianism as a center of social reform. The American Vegetarian Society dissolves. Part of that is because vegetarians are far more concerned with and intertwined with these larger issues facing the union, abolitionism being at the very top of that list. So vegetarianism, which became more prominent and popular precisely because it links to these other ideologies and movements, ends up dissolving, essentially, as an organization by the late 1860s. So vegetarians are fractured from each other. But because there is no organization, this allows for a new vegetarianism to to crop up that focuses on the diet for its health benefits for the individual, and that those health benefits will then also help the individual advance socially and economically. And this is a real difference from the previous vegetarians who saw their diet as a way to help others rather than only themselves. So how much of a sense of reforming zeal is still in the vegetarian movement, say, at the turn of the century? There's definite enthusiasm for reform, but it's it's the reform of the self. And it's the reform of the self as a way to compete in society. Hmm. The end of the 19th century, vegetarianism is touted as a way for the individual to become socially successful, to advance in business, to advance physically even. So that vegetarianism becomes attached to athletics, bodybuilders during this time period. So it's literally the physical manifestation of the ways in which vegetarianism helps the individual succeed is by building muscular, strong bodies best ready to to compete in the world. So in 50 years, vegetarianism reorients itself from a collective purpose to an individual purpose. Is that the, the shortest way to explain what happens? Absolutely. And for such a relatively short time period, that is a fairly remarkable uh, shift in in this ideology and within this movement. And it's embraced so that, you know, the good old veteran of vegetarianism, Henry S. Club, enthusiastically embraces the new vegetarianism as a way for individuals to succeed. I'm going to be around my vegetables. I'm going to chow down my vegetables. I Adam Spritzen is the author of The Vegetarian Crusade, The Rise of an American Reform Movement, 1817 to 1921. If you brought a big brown bag of them home, I'd jump up and down and hope you'd toss me a carrot. I'm gonna keep well my vegetables cart off and sell. My vegetables, I love you most of all, my favorite vegetable. You know, you can't have a show about nutrition without thinking about the most important meal of the day. You know what we're talking about? Breakfast. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, That's what I get up for every morning. If it weren't the spur of a delicious Bowl of raisin bread. I know what you eat. (laughs) And cereal is what we think of when we think of breakfast. Do you think that was true back at Plymouth Rock? (laughs) <laughs> we, we wanted to investigate this question, so we've invited our producer, Andrew Parsons, to join us in the studio. 
talk about the history of cereal. Yeah, did you invite him to bring in that big bottle of milk <laughs> sorry also, about Peter? It. Sorry about the you milk. You know that I'm lactose intolerant. Andrew, here's my seat. It's all yours. So we got an empty seat. Let's talk cereal. Hey, Peter. How you doing? Ed, how you doing? Right. So yeah, uh, I did a little research into the history of cereal, and mm. it's it's one that's sort of wrapped up in you know some chicanery and lawsuits mm. and mm. and a little bit of quackery. And I have several cereals here to to show you. You guys. mean real cereals? Yeah, we're gonna eat in studio. Ooh, wow, Wonderful. I thought that was against yeah. the rules. <laughs> but before we do that, we should right. probably talk about what breakfast was like pre-cereal. Uh-huh. You mean there was uh, a pre-cereal era? Oh yes, oh yes. And we have to go all the way back to you know the mid nineteenth century, uh, where we have some greasy, greasy Mm. breakfasts. Mm. In fact, I talked to cereal historian Topher Ellis, Mm. who pretty much described it this way. Uh, Pork, fried pork, uh, bacon, steak, uh, really heavy meats, uh, fish, cheese, bread, jams. Uh, Basically, the the whole diet was more of a heavy set, very gut-wrenching pile of, you know, your, your fried pork, your fried skins, things like that. Yeah, and a lot of the things that uh, that Topher listed would all be on one plate. I mean, oh, you right. have like four wow. greasy meats together with your eggs and toast. They didn't worry about uh, presentation. <laughs> <laughs> it's as much as just just giant piles. Uh, and this was a problem because you're going from you you have this sort of farm breakfast, and throughout the industrial revolution, hmm. you're going to factories and and offices and and offices too, and you're not working off you know, all of this heavy, heavy stuff that you're eating. Yeah, yeah. So people get heavier and heavier, but they also start feeling yeah, worse yeah. and worse, right? Yeah, there, yeah, there's even a term for it. It's called dyspepsia. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this, it's sort of this vague sort of national tummy ache, but yeah. also... Mass indigestion. It's mass indigestion, exactly. Right. As well, your state of mind. It goes right up to the head, doesn't it? It does go right up to the head because it, you know, supposedly affects the way we act. And so, you know, the solution for it is these, you know, as we heard with Sylvester Graham, it's religious reformers who try to sort of solve this problem. Ooh, Ooh, save your per- soul through your yeah, stomach in some purchase ways, right? of our sins. Ooh, exactly. Otherwise known as pig. And the, the first crack at it is in 1863. I, I I did a little research. It might not be exactly the way it was oh, made, okay. but I this cooked up some some what was called granula. <laughs> granula, is it crunchy granula? Oh. And well, we'll see. Bowls are the first thing out. I want you guys to do is just sort of feel uh, uh, the texture. Yeah. Or oh, let's okay. just look at it. Uh, You're feeding us dog food. What it looks like is uh, I don't know uh, maybe lava bits, but it's brown. I mean. Uh, what does it taste like? It tastes a little bit like brown lava. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, 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 it's not meant to be good. That's one of the uh, selling points, well, it succeeded is it? them. Yeah, exactly. It's these bricks of, of just sort of dense wheat that's uh, mm. baked and then broken up yeah. and then baked again. So that it's, so it's, it's basically, it's, you know, these little chunks of inedible it, it, terribleness. Like re-bricked. Yeah. <laughs> one One bricking wasn't enough. The okay. fact that you guys can eat it probably means yeah. I didn't do it right because it was so hard and so tough to get through that they had to soak it overnight in milk just to have it be edible. Uh, so, yeah, this was sold out of this, uh, what were called sanitariums. Mm, that time, sounds so are... delicious, just a <laughs> sanitarium. Not to be confused with sanatoriums. Oh. Uh, san- sanitariums are <laughs> these uh, sort of cleansing houses, and it was oh, sold mm. to patients that sort of get cured of dyspepsia. And a lot of reformers did. Another one that you might know was this guy. I'm going to give you a bowl, and okay. let me see if you can guess the last name of the person. Okay. Okay, right. I'm wondering if it's chocula. I still it's not haven't got rid of that last stuff, man. Mm. Oh, this looks better. 
Well, oh, it's a nicer color. Ed, you're going to like this. Okay. It's, uh, I'm looking you're even going to recognize it. It's uh, like these a are, flake. What oh, name do you associate with that? It's got to be Kellogg's. Yeah. Right. A few I'm e- guessing Battle Creek, Michigan. Oh. Battle Creek, Michigan, John Harvey Kellogg. He had his own sanitarium. So and, much lighter than mm, granula. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, it took a while because before cornflakes, he started giving granula to his uh, patients at uh, mm-hmm. his Battle Creek sanitarium and, and selling it, too, before he got sued. Right. And he had to change the U to an O. And that's how we get granola. <laughs> no. Wow. He had a lot of these, you know, interesting ideas about health, especially sex, just like Graham. And on first glance, he kind of does look like a quack. You know, he basically described most of the foods that we think are good now as evil poison. I mean, coffee, caffeine, poison, uh, sugar, poison, yeah. even vinegar, mm-hmm. broth, mm-hmm. poison. When I talked to cereal historian Topher Ellis, you know, this is how he basically describes his philosophy. The plainer, the better. Uh, John Harvey Kellogg was really into making sure your body was cleansed. So whether it was the meal that he sent through you or the milk or water enemas that he would have you to do up to eight times a day, uh, the idea was to make sure you had a very cleansed body. Yeah, that, that's right. Milk and, and water enemas. He actually did oh, yogurt no. oh, enemas oh, oh, as well. Please, 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 please. Well, you know, those are the, sort of the same thing as, you know, something like the cornflakes. It's all about cleansing your body. And, you know, mm. people flock to his sanitarium, you know, all the big wigs of the day, you know, uh, Henry Ford later on, mm-hmm. Rockefeller, you right. know, William Howard Taft, our, our fattest well, president, yeah, he you know, to. went there mm-hmm. uh, as well. But there was one other guy who went through there, right. uh, and his name was Post, C.W. Post. Post! That, yeah, if that sounds familiar, I have yes. one more cereal to present oh, to you. Okay. Oh, you know what this, this is? is? I recognize uh, uh, grape, it. Grape, grape nuts. Grape nuts, yeah, which yeah, are yeah. neither grape nor nuts. No, well, that's the thing. Yeah, what he was called? a genius with was marketing. Mm. He, you know, came up with a couple cereals like grape nuts, mm. uh, which, you know, doesn't, as you said, have grape or nuts, but mm. it doesn't matter. It's the word associations that are going to make you buy it. You know, Kellogg sold his cereal, but he didn't mass market it. And when I talked to Topher Ellis, he noted that in the late 19th century, health was going from fringe to pretty mainstream. Everyone was claiming that everything had health properties. What Post was just brilliant at, marketing, advertising, was trying different things that just just really worked. For example, his Postum hot cereal drink he claimed it could uh, take care of everything from, uh, I guess, gout to uh, divorce to uh, a house fire. Now, he didn't actually say it could take care of a house fire. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. But he did say divorce? <laughs> well, what sweeping. he did say I was— think these are grounds for divorce. <laughs> <laughs> but he did say it could prevent blindness, that yeah. it could cure appendicitis. Yeah. That's when the real the serial war started. Yeah. You when know, are we talking about? Uh, so we're talking about the 1890s. Well, this, uh, this happened pretty quickly then. Yeah, so it happened very quickly. By the 1890s, you know, Kellogg was just furious because, you know, he knew that Post was just pretty much kind of cleverly lying to mm, people. Right, but right. he also knew that people were buying this stuff. Right. So, you know, pretty soon he had his version of Great Nuts called Grand Nuts. Uh, <laughs> and, and very quickly Post realized that he could have a cornflake too. He called it Elijah's oh, Mana because people oh, seemed to really, really— what? Elijah's Mana. Because uh-huh. people seem to be really big into religious stuff. You know, they might buy that. Yeah. Post would steal from Kellogg. Kellogg would steal from Post. By 1911, you have, you know, what, 107 different types of cornflakes mm-hmm. being made out of Battle Creek wow. alone. Uh, and what's, what's interesting about that large market, you know, it's sort of really hard, to, as hard to wade through then as it is now. Uh, I mean, it's sort right. of the snake oiling of this is, this is going to cure yeah, everything. Yeah. You know, well, even yeah. in 2009, the FDA had to send a letter to General Mills because their mm-hmm. heart healthy campaign on Cheerios 
so forcefully said that it would lower your cholesterol that they said advertising for Cheerios basically classified it as an unauthorized drug. But that's the appeal to that old notion that health, this is a healthy breakfast, a good way to start your day. It's old-fashioned. It's interesting how the very boxes that you brought into the studio, Andrew, really tell the story, the history Mm -hmm. that you're introducing here. So I'm looking at grape nuts. And of course, what does it say at the bottom? The original cereal. This is as in Kellogg's Corn Flakes. It's the goodness of a simple grain. Guess what? They've been delivering this, the original and the best, since 1906. Which is a little bit later than you would think since uh, <laughs> since John Harvey Kellogg yeah, invented it tell us about in the that. late 1800s. But, you know, even it's his brother, Will Kellogg, that decided mm-hmm. that you don't know how to market this. I do. Will Kellogg decides to sort of buy out his share of the company, add a little sugar, add some of that stuff that, you know, people mm. are craving that Kellogg never wanted to put in. And the cornflakes that you're eating is Will Kellogg's because he decided oh, to take it to the masses. Oh, oh. And they seem health conscious to us now because they are in distinction against the cereals introduced more recently, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. You go, hey, exactly I can right. have Count Chocula or Cap'n Crunch, which are basically yeah. just fossilized sugar, or I could go back to the original health food of cornflakes. Yeah. So, so cereals will save us from cereals. In a way, Andrew, what you're showing us here is that the repressed returns, uh, everything that people would be eating in the olden days is suppressed, and then you go through this phase of really healthy, yucky stuff. But then that taste comes back because you're pandering to a large market. It strikes me that uh, the great trajectory of breakfast in America has yeah. been from grease to sugar. Yeah. You tell me those, no such thing as progress. I love my Now, a lot of us have had the experience of standing in the middle of the grocery aisle, pouring over the microscopic nutritional data on the side of a package of food. And it turns out that this whole idea of quantifying healthiness, of measuring the molecular composition of our food, became standard in the late 19th century. By then, scientists in Europe had already identified that calorie as the fundamental measure of the amount of energy in food. But in the 1890s, a researcher named Wilbur Atwater put a particularly American spin on the issue. It was then that he embarked on what would become famous studies of the chemical composition of 2,600 American foods. And by that, he meant the amount of carbohydrates, fat, and protein. Um, and the overall total number of calories provided by a certain amount of that food. This is Charlotte Biltikoff, who has written about Atwater. She says Atwater not only wanted to know how many calories were in American foods, he also wanted to find out how many calories Americans were burning on a daily basis. To do this, he stuck participants in something called the calorimeter. That was a sealed chamber lined with copper and zinc. A system of thermometers and electric condensers measured the heat and air going in and out of the room. Inside, his research subjects would eat different kinds of food and engage in various activities, like lifting weights or taking tests. 
So he knew exactly what they were taking in in terms of energy and exactly what they were expending in terms of both waste and energy. How did he measure how did he measure what they were expending? Well, I don't know exactly how he measured it, but he he took out all the waste from the sealed chamber as well. Atwater compiled his findings into tables that assigned calorie counts to specific foods and tasks. And then, and this is critical, he added data about each of the food's costs so that he could determine the foods with the greatest caloric bang for the buck. Biltikoff told me that Atwater believed his data could help cool some of the simmering class tensions in Gilded Age America. One of Atwater's big concerns was how to feed all these people flooding into the cities to do work in factories, how to keep them well-fed on the wages that they were earning in the factories. And he was concerned about giving people the information that they needed to choose the food that would give them the energy they needed Hmm. for work. So was this a way of uh, ameliorating class conflict by simply teaching people how to make better use of food? It was certainly a way of, um, of addressing concerns about class conflict and about labor unrest. Atwater and the domestic scientists who popularized his ideas believe that if we give people the nutrition that they need um, at the least possible cost, then, right, they won't be agitating for increased wages. They won't be angry and upset. They won't be in the brothels and in the saloons. That a good, nutritious, uh, economical meal could keep people out of trouble. Charlotte, who were these domestic scientists? Domestic scientists were turn-of-the-century female reformers. Uh, They really believed that bringing science into the domestic realm, and especially into cooking, um, would solve the social problems of the day. And they did all kinds of things to spread, you know, Atwater's gospel, so to speak, including um, putting together um, social reform projects like the New England Kitchen, which was a public kitchen that was meant to be a teacher of good methods and of eating right, essentially. And they brought Atwater's work to the public. I want to ask you about this New England Kitchen. Uh, Who is it directed at and what do they actually serve there? Well, the New England Kitchen began in one of Boston's poor neighborhoods. And the idea was that the working poor in this neighborhood, immigrants and uh, factory workers, etc., would bring their lunch pails into the New England Kitchen, and there they would be exposed to the silent teacher of cleanliness and hygienic methods. <laughs> these patrons were illiterate. So rather than teaching by handing out pamphlets, um, the domestic scientists sought to teach by example, both by how they conducted their own work in the kitchen, which was through very um, scientific processes. They considered the kitchen a laboratory. And they also um, wanted to teach through the food that they gave. So this food was not frivolous. It was, uh, that was an important distinction to them. The food was not there to be enjoyed. Um, It was there to convey uh, two things. One is a very specific amount and balance of nutrients. And two was a message about the importance of thinking about food in relationship to the nutrition that it provided and to the the cost of that food. Um, And it might be things like um, brown bread and beef stew, pea soup, porridges. Mm, Porridges. Was taste a uh, consideration here? I mean, did they care about whether the workers actually like this? This is all beginning to sound a little like school lunch programs that (laughs) aim to be more nutritious but 
you know, when they measure what's being thrown away, you know, like 87% of the stuff is being thrown away. Well, ironically, or maybe not, um, the New England Kitchen was actually the source of the first school lunch program. They started well, sending I thought lunches. I sniffed out a little school <laughs> lunch origin there. They, they began uh, sending lunches out to schools and hospitals in part because the people who they were trying to reach were not interested. Let me ask you if the working class pretty much rejected uh, this not-so-great-tasting food— did it put the domestic scientists out of business? Who did they uh, turn their attention toward? Absolutely didn't put them out of business. So they discovered that, you know, the Irish and Scandinavian and German and Russian and Italian immigrants who's, who they were trying to teach to eat like them um, really preferred the dishes that they were accustomed to. <laughs> and furthermore, you know, that for them, eating meat three times a day was exactly what they came to America for. Um, and they didn't want to be told otherwise. But um, they turned their attention at that point to, to the middle class. And that transition point, I think, is a very important one. This is in the mid-1890s as the New England kitchen and all of the public kitchens that had grown up to replicate it were failing. Um, the domestic scientists turned their attention to what they called the intelligent middle classes. Um, and they started to draw this important distinction between the stubborn, incorrigible, indifferent, uninterested poor populations and the more intelligent, cosmopolitan thinking classes who were more amenable to this kind of education and to this kind of change. So let me stop you there and ask if one of the reasons that domestic scientists were interested in nutrition was to solve social problems, did they just give up on solving social problems? No, they, they shifted their um, focus to the middle class and to a different kind of thinking about what the social problems were. So um, one of the social problems of the time was the sense that the Anglo middle class was deteriorating. And this gives rise to eugenics, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes. Um, but it also gives rise to a way of thinking about changing the environment in order to improve the race and to improve heredity. And how did that work with food? Well, the, the approach to diet remained very focused on Atwater's principles of nutrition. It was about uh, really thinking about the kitchen as a scientific laboratory and ridding American kitchens of sensuality, intuition, tradition, and all of those approaches to cooking that could end up in unpredictable messes. Um, <laughs> so uh, science was to take over and to um, provide replicable, predictable, and reliable results that would promise efficient diets, you know, across the land. Charlotte Biltikoff is the author of Eating Right in America, The Cultural Politics of Food and Health. She's a professor at the University of California, Davis. Hey, guys, we got a call from Washington, D.C., and it's Elizabeth. Elizabeth, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me. So uh, we're trying to get right with our digestive systems. What do you got? <laughs> I was just wondering, I, you know, I feel like every time I go to the grocery store, there are all these products yeah. marked gluten-free or soy-free or dairy-free. And yeah. I was just wondering sort of what the history is with these, for lack of a better word, 
food avoidance diets. Mm -hmm. And if it went from medicine to pop culture or pop culture to medicine and what happened there? Well, great question, Elizabeth. When and why did we get free with food? Ed, what do you think? Well, it begins before we think of either the concepts of medicine or pop culture as we know them now, Elizabeth. Uh, It's actually imported from England in uh, 1817. And, of course, the first thing we're supposed to be free of is meat. So Mm. meat-free diets, they're the the beginning of things to avoid as the foundation of a diet. But it doesn't begin quite so much for a concern for our digestive health, but because of the larger perspective that led to pacifism and abolitionism and feminism of being sensitive to the suffering of other sentient beings. Wow. Well, Elizabeth, I I think that um, the guys will agree this is a bit of a 20th century phenomenon. If we're talking about uh, X-free foods in order to deal with either allergies or intolerances or insensitivities. Now, I think overall it's probably a reaction to the manufactured, processed Mm -hmm. techniques that really take off in the early 20th century for lots of our food. I I see Ed. Ed is crinkling up his eyebrows. I I, I kind of agree with you. I smell trouble. (laughs) Well, the way you phrased it, you are necessarily right, is that as soon as we start thinking about allergies and intolerances and insensitivities – Those are 20th century concepts. The idea of avoiding food of various kinds of groups for various kinds of reasons. Now, of Mm -hmm. course, we don't want to talk about the largest religions in the world have done this for millennia, we want to point out. But but the idea, Brian, the very vocabulary you're using is the one that Elizabeth is seeing at the grocery store, right? It is the merger Mm -hmm. of pop culture and medicine. So what's interesting is not so much the idea that certain kinds of foods are bad for us or bad for society or bad for the world and should be avoided. What's new is the grid of explanation that we're laying down over. Yeah. And where we come from before all of this, before 1817, is a notion of balance, not of selecting things and eliminating things. I like what you said about uh, reform in the 19th century, uh, Ed, because in a way, free uh, is associated with self-control and restraint. You're not free unless you're exercising that. You're not a free, autonomous individual. The more things we deny ourselves, uh, the, the more free we are. And the interesting thing is that uh, we're making all these choices. We feel like we're controlling the, our bodies and our lives and our health, but we're responding to cues that we're getting from the outside, including from industry, about what's mm-hmm. good for us. So you might feel that this is the, the moment in which you've really achieved control, but believe me, you're also being controlled by the marketers. So my theory, Elizabeth, is that The explosion of gluten-free, for instance, in the last 10 or 15 years is just part of a very long process of customization, Mm -hmm. of taking a mass-produced product and really tailoring it for individuals. Let's take the history of the TV dinner. Right, which starts in the 1950s, and you bought your TV dinner, Mm -hmm. and you had your meat, you had your potato, and you had your dessert. And there were very few choices. If you go into the supermarket today, it is just staggering the number of choices that you have. And I I think this whole taking things out of Mm -hmm. food is part of a movement to say, you know, 
I'm still going to buy my food at a Wegmans, let's say, which sells a lot of gluten-free products. But when I shop at Wegmans, I want them to tailor that food to me, even though it's mass-produced. we're making the choices, though. And the more things we choose not to do, the more we have affirmed our unique identity. This is not to say that these intolerances are not real. I'm lactose intolerant, and if I have any kind of milk product, I explode. It is to say that I can now buy mass-produced goods that cater to my particular genetic biological makeup. Um, You know, to give you an amusing sense of the usage of the word free, I was uh, at a an event one time, and uh, the waiter brought up a dish, and I said, hey, what do we have here? He says, uh, this is a veggie-free ta-ta. And I said, <laughs> I said, veggie-free? I said, you know. No veggies. That, I, yeah. I actually see asparagus in it. <laughs> so my, my guest and I looked at it a little while, then we realized that what he had heard as he left the kitchen was, it's a veggie frittata. But his idea is so common, (laughs) is the concept of free, that he applied it even to veggie-free. So to any marketer out there in the world, I share with you, (laughs) feel free to use veggie-free as a marketing technique. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. And remember, let freedom ring in the supermarket aisles. (laughs) Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Marion Burroughs is a food journalist who, over the course of her career, has written for the Washington Post and the New York Times. Early on, she focused mostly on recipes. <laughs> My favorite recipe story is a recipe that goes back to when I was first married many, many years ago for something called blueberry tort. I love blueberry tort. Uh, when I got to the New York Times, it was published nine years in a row. <laughs> and the editor finally said to me, We're going to print it in very large letters, large enough for anybody to cut out, laminate it, and put it on their refrigerator, but we're not (laughs) printing it anymore. But in the late 1970s, Burroughs also started reporting on politics, food politics. One of her first stories was about the Senate Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs. It was called the McGovern Committee after the chair, Senator George McGovern, who she said had been interested in nutrition for a long time. I remember years before interviewing McGovern at his house, and they were talking then about how even their dog was fed low-fat kinds of food. McGovern's committee formed in 1968 after a CBS TV documentary raised concerns about hunger in America. But in addition to drafting legislation that would radically expand the food stamp program, the committee also started worrying about what Americans were eating. By the mid-60s, coronary heart disease had reached record levels, and a number of scientific studies were starting to link heart disease with a high-fat diet. For nine years, the McGovern Committee methodically interviewed the authors of these studies in addition to a wide range of nutritional experts. Finally, in 1977, the committee was ready to release its recommendations about what Americans should eat. Up to that point, if the government had anything to say about food, it was eat more, drink more, eat more eggs, drink more milk, eat more corn. But in 1977, the McGovern Committee said something completely radical. Yeah, Americans should eat more grains, 
but they also needed to eat a lot less. Specifically, less fat, less sugar, less salt, which meant, of course, that they'd need to decrease their consumption of meat, eggs, and whole milk. And what happened was that especially the meat people got wind of this and they went, I think the term is ballistic, and all of a sudden they were telling the committee that you can't say that. And what are you going to do to the people who raise meat? And You're going to ruin Americans' diet. Everything was wrong. Marion, was the beef industry asleep at the switch? I mean, how did they let such a high-profile committee <laughs> get so far down the uh, eat-less-beef path? First of all, lobbying wasn't what it is today. Secondly, it wasn't that powerful a committee. And so they weren't aware of it. There wasn't anybody up there on the hill to signal them, hey, see what's going on over here. they were asleep at the switch. Who else (laughs) uh, took umbrage at this report? There were some scientists who took umbrage. I can't give you their names, but there were people who think they're going out on a limb way too far without the proof that they need to have. Marion, we've got a clip here that I want you to listen to. It's from NBC News, and it's Dr. Robert Olson. He's a nutritionist and paid consultant of the American Egg Board, and he's arguing with Senator George McGovern. I have pleaded in my report and will plead again orally here for more research on the problem before we make announcements to the American public. Well, I I would only argue that senators don't have the luxury that a research scientist does of waiting until every last shred of uh, evidence is in. So uh, this committee uh, made up of big names, they hung tough, right? They didn't cave. Mm, Wrong. Wrong. Oh, darn. (laughs) Um, The meat industry and the egg industry demanded that they be heard. So they had some more hearings in committee and um, they got across their point. So how did those hearings go? The, The hearings went so well for the Uh, new lobbyists, you might call them, uh, that they got just about everything they wanted. For instance, the president of the National Cattlemen's Association uh, was looking for some kind of a compromise on the wording. Senator Dole said to him, I wonder if you could amend number two, making a reference to what the recommendation was. That was to decrease the intake of red meat. And say, quote, increase consumption of lean meat. Would that taste better to you? <laughs> well, leave it to Dole. You know, he's he got a great sense of humor. He does have a sharp sense of humor, yes. Yes. Mr. Finney said, decrease is a bad word, Senator. <laughs> so what had been eat less meat became eat lean meat, and that made them relatively happy. But I remember when I read it, I was horrified. That was how naive I was in terms of, of lobbying, and et cetera, that somebody could come along, a bunch of guys who raise cows and or steer, <laughs> and, and tell you to change it to eat lean meat instead of eat less meat, and they capitulated? And the committee did it, including George McGovern, right? Yep. Well, he came from a cattle state, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. He's from South Dakota. And uh, they changed some other things as well. What else did they change? And they added, um, and this, and I quote here, Some consideration should be given to easing the cholesterol goal in order to obtain the nutritional benefits of eggs in the diet. Ah, so eggs were not as bad as the original report said. Not according to this report, no. So you you have covered food for almost half a century. Oh, my God. (laughs) I know, that's shocking, isn't it? So what would you like our listeners to know about food? Well, first of all, I think people need to know that food is very political. And that a lot of things that happen or don't happen have to do with the lobbying efforts of 
whatever. And it, it has an impact on uh, just about everybody, I guess, who gets that kind of money about what they're going to say about food. So take it all with a grain of salt. <laughs> but not as much salt as you might have taken it with. No, a, a grain, only a grain. Chica. Marion Burroughs is a retired food writer, most recently with the New York Times. We'll post her famous blueberry tort recipe at backstoryradio.org. That's going to do it for us today, but the conversation continues online. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, SoundCloud, whatever you do. Don't be a stranger. Hey, a tisket, a tasket, what's a mama's basket? Some veggie links and some fish that stinks. Why just the other day I went to grab Today's episode of Backstory was cooked up by Tony Field, Nina Ernest, Andrew Parsons, and J.P. Dukes, with research help from Emily Charnock. Backstory's technical director is Jamal Milner. Special thanks this week to Kendra Smith-Howard, Rachel Moran, and our voice of Sylvester Graham, Mr. James Scales. Strictly collard greens and a occasional steak. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel. History made every day. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Peter Onuf is professor of history emeritus at UVA and senior research fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.